If you have your Bibles, there's two places I want you to, uh, to, to find. Uh, the first is Isaiah 53. And if you can just get to Isaiah 53 and just put a mark in, marker in there, that'll be great. And then the other one is going to be Hebrews chapter 10. Um, those are the two texts that I want us to be, that we'll be reading from a couple verses from each of those um, as we go. So, uh, so that's Isaiah 53 and Hebrews 10. I want to ask a, a question, kind of getting started. And the question is, when you receive a gift that you don't really want, are you gifted at hiding that right then in the moment? Anybody? Anybody good at that? I don't think I am. I think I'm one of those people that when I get a gift that is not what I was wanting, it registers on my face immediately. And I hate that about myself because it's, because it's not just the, the, you know, the, the weird Christmas sweater kind of thing. But it's like, you know, say I wanted a, a 64-gig iPod and I got a 32-gig iPod. That same, it would look like I just got the ugly Christmas sweater the disappointment that would register on my face. Do any of you do this? We register this disappointment, and it says something about us that I think is important for us to think about during a season where gift-giving is something that is done, and the reason that it's done is because it's to remind us of a gift that God has given us. And this, and this is the point. You and I can be disappointed with anything. Nothing's good enough. I mean, we can find fault in anything that is given to us. That's a part of who we are. But like we talked about last week, there are gifts that are given to us that we may be disappointed in them. But often it's because we don't understand the gift that's been given to us. We don't understand the value of what's been given. I told a story last week of my grandmother giving me a photo album of photos that dated back 100 years and how it was just meaningless to me when she was telling me a century's worth of my own story, um, and I ended up destroying the photo album to put Indiana Jones trading cards in it, you know? Um, we have this in us. When you look at Scripture, you see that God gives his people certain things. He gives, the, he gives them certain gifts. In the Old Testament, there are three people, types of people, that he gives his people that when you look at them, you may think, and we've done this throughout history, we say, I don't really want that in my life. And yet he says, but you, you need this. This is something you need. Those three types of people that I'm talking about are he's given them prophets and kings and priests. He, he sends prophets. And what do the prophets do in the Old Testament? They communicate God's word to God's people. These are the people like Moses, like Isaiah, like Malachi, the prophets that God raises up and says, speak to my people these words. And they go and they speak the words. And sometimes they're so affectionate and warm, and sometimes they're so just like a, like a finger in the chest of God's people, rebuking them and showing them the depth of their sin. But he gives them prophets because they, they need them. 
They need to be able to hear. He gives them kings, people to lead. Now, these kings sometimes did well, sometimes they didn't do well, but he gave them kings to lead them. Why? Because as the book of Judges tells us, when, when the people don't have someone governing over their hearts and their minds, everyone just does what is right in their own eyes. And it disintegrates into this anarchy type of, of um, ungracious hatred toward one another. So he gives kings so that there would be government and there would be order because our hearts need to be governed. Our hearts need to be ruled. Our hearts need law because we're lawbreakers. And he gives priests these people who would come and mediate this sacrificial relationship between man and God, that they would come and they would present sacrifices to atone for the sins of the people so that the people would be right in the presence of God and so that their worship would be received. And when you think about all three of those offices, the prophet, the priest, and the king, they are in some nature offensive to us, and they should be, because what they tell us is on our own we cannot hear, On our own, we cannot live well. And on our own, we are not acceptable in the presence of God, that we need redemption, we need atonement, we need sacrifice. God is providing fundamental needs. He's meeting fundamental needs for his people in these offices. And yet he's he's giving them in the form of people who are broken and who are pulled back and forth. But in the person of Jesus, we find the perfect prophet, the perfect prophet, king and the perfect priest. And that's what we're going to be talking about this week, next week, and the week after that, is how Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of these things in a a way that is incredibly beautiful. Because in the Old Testament, the prophets would come and they would speak the word of God. But what does scripture tell us about Jesus? That he's the prophet who is, at the same time, he is the word of God. He's the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And as a king, God would send kings. He would raise up kings. But like, like David, he would rule well, but he would also have incredible collapses of integrity. Jesus would be the king who, as Philippians 2 would tell us, would be the one who would become the servant of all and would lay down everything and be elevated to this place where at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he's Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then as priest, he gives the people priests. You got Aaron and, and the whole tribe of the Levites. But they, what would they do? They would bring these sacrifices, these lambs, these bulls, these goats, these birds. And they would kill these beasts for the sins of the image bearers of God. But what was Jesus? He was the priest who became the sacrifice. We come to the Lord's table today. It's such a beautiful day to do this with this text in front of us, this concept in front of us of Jesus as the perfect priest who becomes the sacrifice. That's what he does. I want you to imagine, I want you to use your minds, your imaginations with me, and I want us to think about Old Testament priests for a little bit. Now, for some of you in this room, I may be losing you right now. You may be thinking, I don't like Old Testament stuff. This sounds academic. It sounds heady. I promise you it's not going to be. But I want you to hang with me. I want you to imagine this. What is the image that you have in your mind of an Old Testament priest? If it's anything like me, 
It's probably a guy in a big robe, probably old, probably not that much to look at, maybe pompous. But I want to challenge that because of the nature of his work. The Old Testament priest was one who worked in the center of the town where the, where the altar was, who would receive the animals from all the families and would sacrifice them and offer them up to the Lord. He, he, he had a very physically demanding job. He was handling live animals. He was a butcher in a lot of ways. He was a person who was regarded as necessary to the lifeblood of any community that anyone lived in. He, he was an essential figure. Think about, you know, the old uh, 40s and 50s, kind of small American town and sort of the established figures that are there every place that you go. You've got the local sheriff, right? You've got the judge. You've got, what else do you have? The dog catcher. You know, you have all these people and you have the, the pastor, you know, the local parson who goes around and visits the shut-ins and things like that. Every Old Testament town, they had these people. They had a priest, but he was not the frail old man who just barely got around. In most cases, this guy would have been built because his work demanded it. And he would have had a smell about him. The smell of working with livestock on a regular basis. The smell of working with fire and wood and smoke. The smell of that, you know, that iron-rich scent of blood and it would have been just infused into his pores now the children see this man they pass him on the street with the dress and the smell and the way that moms and dads regard him as someone to be even a little bit feared because of the nature of his role and they tell the children what he does is holy Imagine the mind of a child, how he would be a little bit of an intimidating, perhaps even a scary person to consider, because what are they getting? They're getting that the priest is the person who deals with God on behalf of the sins of the people. And what he works primarily in is death and blood and sacrifice. The tabernacle where he works. There's no chair in the tabernacle. God designed the tabernacle. There's no chair. And Hebrews tells us that the reason that there's no chair is because his work is never finished. He has to keep doing this and keep doing this and keep doing this. Imagine the line of livestock leading out of the city, the continual unending line, one after another, after another, after another, being offered up for the sins of the people and this river of blood that is flowing. This is the system of the Old Testament. And it's designed by God, I believe, to set in the hearts and minds of people this idea that the sacrificial system is insufficient to atone for the sins of me that all the lambs in the world are not enough to cover my sin 
before the living and holy God. I need a better sacrifice. I need a more perfect sacrifice while the priest toils and labors and slaves away in their day after day after day after day after day. And why? Because we just keep breaking God's law in our hearts and with our lives day after day after day. And then we come to a passage like Isaiah 53 which is talking about God's remedy for this problem of the way that the sacrifice is never catching up to the sin. And he describes the one who would meet this need perfectly. And here's what he says, Isaiah 53, 4 through 7. Surely he has borne our griefs, And has carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I present to you Friends, this is an incredible Christmas passage. Because at Christmas, we celebrate incarnation. We celebrate the second person of the Blessed Trinity taking on flesh. And as Isaiah 53, what he's telling us here is, here's why he's doing that. Here's why he's doing that. Because in part, he holds the office of priest over you. Do you believe you need a priest? Do you believe that you need one other than yourself to make atonement for your sin, to mediate the brokenness of your relationship with God? It's the story of Scripture that we desperately need this, this gift that we have been given that the holiest among us still in some measure fails to recognize the the significance of because we're so broken. We've been given this incredible gift, but when we look into the manger, here's what we see. We see this extraordinary gift in the person of the Son of God in Jesus. And all the things that he would teach, all the miracles he'd perform, all the inspiration that Jesus would give, all the things that he would do, without the incarnation, without his broken body and his shed blood, would not atone for a single sin. But Jesus comes into a place through his life and his death and resurrection that is a holier place than the tabernacle of man in the Old Testament. And he does so by the means of a blood that is holier than a lamb's. I want to read from Hebrews 9. I didn't ask you to go there, but Hebrews 9, 11 through 14. 
When Christ came as the high priest, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes sprinkled on those who are ceremonial unclean sanctify them so that they're outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So the question is this, what was accomplished? when he was pierced for our transgressions and when he was crushed for our iniquities and when the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we were healed. When we all like sheep had gone astray and each had turned to his own way and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. When he was oppressed and afflicted and did not open his mouth, when he was like a lamb led to the slaughter, what was accomplished? Hebrews 10, 11 and 12. And I want to illustrate this. It says this. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, what does it say? He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. There's a chair in the presence of God, and it is occupied by your great high priest, and he sits there enthroned as the one who made the perfect sacrifice for your sins. That's what we celebrate on Christmas. What does this mean, that you have this great high priest It means you don't have to avoid or minimize the struggle or the pain of your brokenness because you have a great high priest. You don't have to minimize that. You don't have to dismiss it. You don't have to pretend it's not there. You have a perfect high priest. Everything broken in you, everything messed up in you, everything in you that you just wish were different, you have a great high priest. And you are free to celebrate your needs that are met in Christ because you have this one who has met them so perfectly, so perfectly. When we come to this table, we come to these, I think this is part of the beauty of what Christ has done in giving bread and a cup for us because they're so suitable for a child 
They're so simple, so basic. He's saying it's complete. I've provided for you everything that you need. I've met those needs, and I've done it perfectly. Your priest never stands in the temple anymore offering sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. He offered one and then took a seat at the right hand of God where he is enthroned forever as your high priest. Pray with me. Lord, your word says that people living in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Father, we thank you that our great high priest is not one who offers insufficient sacrifices over and over and over, but is one who has offered himself once and for all, and that you have received that sacrifice as perfect, such that he has taken a seat unprecedented in your presence, that the priest would sit. And yet there he is. Father, as we come to this table today, Lord, I ask that you would protect us from mere ritualism, but that this would be for us a beautiful expression and act of worship today. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray, and for your glory, amen and amen. We're coming to the Lord's table now, and I want to set it up with just a few quick words. It's easy for us in this season of life to be jaded. There's a lot to be jaded about. Um, Christmas can be more of a, of a burden than a joy uh, for us, the season anyway, and all that it requires, and all that it costs, uh, and all that it demands of our time. But right now, brothers and sisters, the presence of the Lord is with us in a powerful way. He's promised us that. We don't need to pray and ask that he would show up this morning. He's here. And he's given us this table. It's not a new idea of his. It's been going on for thousands of years, but he bids his people come. Come to this table, and when you do it, remember me. Remember what I've done. You can't have Easter without Christmas. You can't have what this table represents without Christmas, without the baby in the manger. You can't. God has given us an incredible gift, a great high priest who has become our sacrifice, and this table reminds us of that. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a struggling believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a sinning believer in Jesus Christ, which if you're a believer in Christ, you're one of those. If you're somebody who's wrestling with doubt, this table is for you. This table is not a table for those who have it all together. Hallelujah. Who could come? Yeah. This table is for those who are trusting in Christ's perfect work on our behalf. That said, if, if you're not a believer in Christ, I want to ask you not to come to the table, not as a way of embarrassing you, but as a way of saying, this table means something, and it means that we believe what these elements represent. 
But I would encourage you this morning, if you know that you're not a believer in Christ, to receive him in a different way, other than the elements, to ask that he would do a work in your heart, that he would, that he would change your life forever, that you, you could come and talk to me or to any of the people around you. Just say, I, I need to receive Jesus today. We'll be happy to pray with you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. It's probably pretty different than the bread we've got here, but the beauty of the gospel is doesn't matter um, that the bread is exactly the same. He gave it to his disciples, this bread, and he said, take it, this is my body, which is for you. And in the same measure later, he took the cup, and he passed it around, he gave thanks, and he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood which is for the forgiveness of your sins. The Apostle Paul later in 1 Corinthians 11 said, whenever you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. There are two things that we're being called to do when we come to this table, to remember what Christ has done and to proclaim our faith in what he has done until he comes again, which tells us that you know we have the Advent wreath here, and we were talking last week about how we live between two Advents, the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Because we live between two Advents, there's a, there's a limited number of times we'll come to this table because Christ will return, and this table will be replaced by the marriage supper of the Lamb, and it'll be glorious. But until then, he bids us come, come. The way we do it here at, at uh, 12 South is uh, the worship team will, will go first. There'll be kind of a moment of, of silence, and, and they'll uh, lead us in some music. We don't dismiss by rows. It's come as you're ready. You'll kneel around the tables. You'll serve each other. You can say this is the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. Um, if, you're, if you're here alone, um, don't be afraid to ask somebody if they'd be willing to serve you. Um, if you see somebody that's alone, don't be afraid. Don't be shy to volunteer to serve them, to ask them, hey, can I serve you communion this morning? Um, you can take your time. We're not in a hurry. We're not on the clock. Uh, and we'll, we'll just we'll take the time. You just come up here and kneel around the table and head back whenever you're finished. And so come as you're ready. Pray with me. Father, thank you for this table. Thank you for this time together today. Lord, we ask that you would um, uh, continue to engage our hearts with you, that you would show yourself to us uh, in a powerful way this morning. Father, thank you that, um, uh, that this table represents a work that is complete, uh, that we don't need any more sacrifices on our behalf. We don't need you to die again. Um, Father, thank you for giving yourself up, for coming for the purpose of offering up yourself for the sins of your people, Lord, and for making such a perfect sacrifice. Thank you for the victory and the beauty and the joy that is represented in you sitting in the presence of God as the priest, um, declaring that the, the sacrificial system is finished, it's taken care of. Thank you for that, Lord. Would you be with us now uh, in our hearts, engage us. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen.